standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, which is a bloody lovely chat I had about Mary Wollstonecraft with the writer Samantha Silver. Wollstonecraft is the subject of Samantha's latest book, Love and Fury, an historical fiction reanimating the life and legacy of arguably the world's first feminist. And what a life! We chat, being an 18th century rad femme, why Wollstonecraft is still all too relevant today, sad face, the importance of women, ofs, and that Newington Green statue. It's not a statue. I forgot to ask in the interview, but you can follow Samantha on Twitter, at Samantha Rella. Oh, and any notes on what books you think Satan would approve of, much appreciated for our reading list. Thanks. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by writer Samantha Silver. Samantha, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. We are going to talk about a true feminist trailblazer whose portrait sits in front of me at my desk every single day. But before we get to her, you're in Idaho, so I wanted to know, how's feminism looking in America right now? Well, in Idaho in particular, it's looking (laughs) terrible. We have a legislature, a state legislature, that has done everything they they could to really, you know, take the cause of women back 50 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, they refused childcare money that was free, federal government money to help childcare centers and help women get back into the workforce, and they refused it. And someone actually said in his out loud voice, well, women <laughs> need to be in the house. You know, they're the best teachers, they're the first teachers. We don't want to encourage early childhood education. So they're saying it out loud and, you know, threatening to take away birth control, that you can't get birth control for more than three months at a time. Why would a woman want that? Why would a woman want to be able to, you know, have control over birth control, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, as in Texas, having just passed a fetal heartbeat abortion bill, we are going backward and we are going backward quickly in America. And it's absolutely frightening. And it is that thing, of course, that America tends to be the weather vane for a lot of the world. And I think a lot of the world, including the UK, including, I say the UK, but obviously Northern Ireland is part of the UK and still doesn't have abortion rights. But a lot of the UK just feel quite complacent, like we've got it. And it's like, I tell you what, if it's happening over there in America and so fast, it's going to come over here too. Absolutely. And there's so much big money behind it. In fact, one of the organizations that sort of attracts all this dark money basically came out and admitted, we're writing the laws for each of these state legislatures. And so they're just copycatting it. They're just taking over state legislatures. They can run their people or school boards or even library boards. We have a library board in the north of Idaho. People are running for a seat saying things like, well, we just don't think there should be books that, you know, in the library that Satan would approve of. (laughs) You know, this is the level of discourse in in parts of Idaho. I keep trying to get him on the phone and he's not picking up. He's too busy talking to Idaho legislators. That's right. (laughs) What books would Satan approve of? Oh, I'm I'm intrigued. I bet I've read them. Yeah. Oh, you've read all of them. Well, Mary Wollstonecraft to start with. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. She would be on the list. So it's a big, it's a big fight. And there are, there are people fighting back. This is a state, Idaho, that produced fabulous, amazing senators like Senator Frank Church. And we've had great Democratic governors and wonderful moderate rep- Republicans. But it's just the whole country is moving in the direction of crazy fascist Republicans who don't believe in democracy because they know that they're not going to win fair and square. 
they have to cheat and they have to lie and they have to make sure that people of color don't vote. Yeah. You know, and, and then on top of that, they have to mess with the voting machines. So, the, you know, it's a, it's a multi-pronged attack on our democracy. And the end goal is tyranny. Yeah. Again, like what happens in America comes over here. We've just had this. They've snuck it in through the back door, which they keep doing with stuff, because obviously people are very distracted, understandably, by COVID and by the pandemic and by surviving. But this new you've got to have photo ID to vote like three and a half million people in the UK don't have that. People aren't turning out to vote anyway. Do you want to take a guess at who doesn't have that photo ID? Ah, here we are again. It's uh blood boiling it's like america's a testing ground for this stuff and then they just you know repackage it put it in a uk package and take it over there it's really frightening and i you know i hope i hope that there's there's still a possibility that in the states we will you know pass hr1 sb1 which is the voting basically restoration of the voting rights act okay that has to happen because otherwise there are 360 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures around the country to restrict voting that's to make outrageous. it harder it's incredible to you know restrict hours ballot boxes you know create id restrictions so that people without id can't vote i mean they're every every which way and the legislatures are just you know, they're going gangbusters with it. So unless we can stop it at, at the federal level, I, I, don't, I don't have much hope for our democracy. And I mean that quite seriously. It's just so sad, isn't it? I'm just terrified by it, really. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. And in the meantime, let's talk about a woman who was also terrified by how she saw stuff, but set about making some changes So your latest book, Love and Fury, is a historical novel about fearless 18th century thinker and feminist icon, Mary Wollstonecraft. So when did you first become aware of Wollstonecraft and what drew you to her as a subject? Honestly, it was around the time of the Frankenstein 200th anniversary, about three years ago, and and everybody was talking about Mary Shelley, and Frankenstein was was everywhere. And I was reading the book, and, you know, full disclosure, I'd never read Frankenstein. And so I'm reading the book, and a friend of mine says, oh, that's the saddest book that's ever been written. It's a sad book. And, you know, and you, you realize that it's you know, it's fundamentally, apart from the other things, that it's that it's about hubris and all these other things. It's really about a child abandoned by its creator, mm-hmm. by its parents. So we're having conversations about Shelley and Frankenstein, and, and someone said to me, well, you know, no one talks about Wollstonecraft in the same way, and she's so, you know, she's the mother is so important. And so I didn't know very much, and I don't know how it is in the UK, but here, you know, unless you're gender studies, unless you're specifically looking at that, you know, that period or the subject, Mary Wollstonecraft doesn't really come onto our radar in America, in American education. And so I started reading, and I just, and I just became so compelled by her. And especially, you know, in trying to figure out a structure for the novel, I just kept coming back to this idea that Mary Wollstonecraft gives birth to Mary Shelley. And for the first five days, they think the baby will die. And then it becomes clear that she has puerperal fever mm-hmm. and she will die. And, but, but this takes place over 10 days. Yeah. You know, and I just think, God, you know, in those 10 days, what would you want your child to know about your life? Want your daughter to know about life? 
Yeah. And so it became a way to, to, you know, to tell the story and sort of to find for Wollstonecraft, for me to find what I think of as the plot points of her life, the things that altered her trajectory. And a lot of them are about abuse and tyranny. It's a, such a hard life. It's a really hard life. And she, you know, she has this incredible kind of rage at injustice that um, I think is in her nature, but she never gives up. I mean, every time she's, you know, confronted with a wall, she spends all her energy trying to knock it down. And it's really an incredible life. I mean, I've been so enthralled with her and with her doggedness. She's an amazing character to write about. Absolutely. And I think it's very similar over here, obviously. She is one of ours. But at the same time, unless you're looking into it, you don't necessarily come across her. Recently, there was a, a sculpture, a very controversial sculpture. And so hopefully that will make people ask questions and not just what the fuck is that, but also questions <laughs> about why it's there and who she is. But yeah. what is really fascinating to me about Mary Wollstonecraft is she is she's quite the paradox, isn't she? She's like her diaries and her letters, and you very much cover this in Love and Fury, reveal her to be very often totally enthralled to her emotions and yet her thinking this writing that we have that she's left for us is so rational <laughs> yeah absolutely you know and I, th- I think I realized as well that I thought Jane Austen you know invented sense and sensibility oh, no. basically as ideas <laughs> but it's you know it goes on for the debate goes on for a hundred years really you know between sort of in- enlightenment and romantic thought and sensibilities and you know Wollstonecraft is such a good example of a woman who actually pays attention to her emotions which she considers an important barometer of you know what's happening around her and her interior life I mean I think probably now we would say she suffers from depression and anxiety mm-hmm. but there's nothing to be done about it then you know you live with it but she understands I think in a way that she has this sort of expansive intellect and she's able to contain and dissect and debate ideas rational ideas but that she also must be fine-tuned to her emotional life and her interior life because it's such a guide for her I love in the book that there are characters who I think, you know, represent that, represent sense and rational thought and characters who, who, you know, much more represent the idea of the emotions and sense of what we think of as, as sensibility. And that her life was really a quest to integrate those parts of herself. Probably for me, her greatest book is her last book, the letters, it's called different things, but, you know, the collection of letters that she, she writes. That snares Godwin. Yeah, exactly. If ever there was a book, you know, designed to to make one fall in love with its author, it's that one. It's such a modern book in so many ways because, you know, it has these sort of moments of thinking about civilization and, you know, in the history of of men and the ways in which men have, you know, absolutely failed everyone by running (laughs) civilization. And then it's also travelogue and then it's interior life and emotional life and there and in kind of a, you know, quite a modern voice. Like it's the eye, the eye, the eye having this experience of nature, of watching families, of thinking about the sweep of history and, you know, making that all one book. It's quite an extraordinary accomplishment, but I think it's also just represents who she was you know, mm-hmm. she was she was a big big thinker and a big feeler and she's trying to figure out how you know as one human being and a woman living with all these constraints you make those things make sense 
I mean, she invents the life of a feminist, really. It doesn't, doesn't exist, but she's creating the life of a feminist in real time with whatever materials she has to work with. And it's her raw, fierce intellect and these intense emotions. I love that about her. Obviously, Wollstonecraft is often credited or accused of, depending on how you stand on feminism, but with being the world's first feminist, even though the word feminist wasn't coined until the 1890s, 100 years after her death. Also, I am I am going to kind of call bullshit on it because for as long as there have been gender roles, women have fought them, but she wrote it down. You know, and in the case of working class women and women even below that level, they didn't have the time or the money to sit and think about breaking them. They were having to go to work and do stuff. But there's no doubt that Wollstonecraft is this radical who writes this down, who says, I'm going to live off my writing, which was just insane at the time for a woman to think that. And she's still frustratingly very relevant, isn't she? Yes, absolutely. She is. And I followed very closely the sculpture, the whole controversy about the sculpture. I thought it was fascinating. And, you know, B. B. Rollat, who who really, you know, led the campaign for so long, for 10 years to to raise the money for it, said, well, her, her mom said to her, well, at least everyone's talking about Wollstonecraft. That's what you wanted. <laughs> you know, it's controversial. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I'm not a fan of what has been put up there. And I did give some money towards the cause because I thought it was really important. And over in the UK, I'm fairly sure it'll be the same in America. We have a lot of statues of men, a lot of statues. Now, a statue is quite straightforward. It's a representation of that person. And that's what I thought I was giving money for. And what we've got is art. Now, art is wonderful. And I think art starts as much discussion. But what we don't have in the UK are statues of women. And I think she deserves a statue. And my guess is she'll get one now, you know, that, that there will... There's there, talks, there's there talks, Samantha. There will be other other versions of it. But still, I mean, I mean, I think one of the things that I admire about it is the notion that the sort of these, you know, roiling tangle of women's bodies and out of it, whether you hate what rises out of it, the sort of every woman, whatever that means to you, if you think it's the objectification of woman's body or, you know, whatever... For me, that's the idea is that generation after generation, women are twisting and turning and roiling and trying and birthing. And we keep trying to birth, you know, our own power. Yeah. And every time we do, it's just so threatening to a world run by men. Which is why what we were talking about at the top is happening. It's like, okay, we take two steps forward and yeah, it's terrifying, like, women having a power or some power is seen as taken away from men and therefore it must be retracted. Yeah, I mean, I I think, um, you know, to go back to what's happening in America, I've thought for a long time that the, the fight really isn't over abortion. We're still litigating the 1960s where women actually had power over their, their sexuality. And, you know, that they had birth control and they could have sex. They could make their own choices about whom to have sex with and when and where. And men did not like that. So abortion becomes the sort of bellwether thing, like, oh, they're pro-children. Well, they're not pro-children. They're anti-women having power over their bodies, mm-hmm. period, of any kind. And now I think they're pretty, you know, they're pretty much saying that out loud, that um, abortion isn't the final frontier because it was never about children. It's about women's bodies and controlling them. Because women who have power over their own bodies, and Wollstonecraft 
understood this. I mean, she, you know, she's quite conservative when she's younger and, you know, thoughts on the education of daughters. She's still saying certain conservative, you know, ideas about like a woman being a mother, you know, most important role and, and things like that. But she's also really saying girls need to be running outside and climbing trees and throwing balls and jumping up and down the same as boys. And you need to educate their, you know, their minds and their bodies and they need to be exposed to all this because you'll be surprised how they're just like them. We're all the same. And so that's the radical idea, is gender equality. And it is absolutely startling that we're still having that conversation 262 years later. Those gender roles, those those sex roles of, of conforming to certain stereotypes that society is just, you know, plucked from thin air because it helps the men in power stay in power. I feel like... I feel like they're getting more defined. I feel like we've gone backwards and there's more definition into, well, this is what girls do. This is what girls like. This is what boys do. This is what boys like. And this is like 200 years after someone was like, nah, screw that. That's not how it should work. It's just, it's sort of insane and fury making and sad. Yeah, I think sometimes during during the writing of the book about the Me Too movement, which really kind of, you know, was happening as I was writing the book. And, you know, when you, when you read Wollstonecraft, often read about her life and the abuse she suffered and the discrimination she suffered, it sort of feels like, God, it doesn't start now, it starts then. You know, women telling the truth is so scary, is so threatening to the power structure. And she, re- you know, she really did believe that civilization run by men had utterly failed us and that it needed to be reinvented and it needed to be, you know, women, okay, we don't want power over men, we want power over ourselves. And that's still the, exactly the fight we're having. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> In uh, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is, you know, probably her most known her seminal work from 1792, the whole thing is about the fact that women are human beings deserving of the same fundamental rights as men. Outrageous! It's just, it's such a simple request. It is, it is. And and I think that if people actually read it today, you know, in America, they'd it, it would be as radical. It would seem radical still. I mean, we can't even pass the Equal Rights Amendment in America that says, you know, women have the exact same constitutional protections as men. And, you know, although we see evidence of discrimination everywhere, everywhere, we can't we can't say that, you know, we can't say that. And it's you know, I think it is similar. I mean, of course, I you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not equating the fight for women's equality with the kind of, you know, what we're doing here right now, trying to understand our history with slavery. But I do think that people are so frightened by actually telling the story. You know, they want to control the narrative. And she kept changing the narrative. She wanted to change the narrative. I mean, for her to take on Edmund Burke is such an incredible thing. 
you know, and I love that she writes, you know, Vindication of the Rights of Men. And then, oh, God, that's not enough. Now I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to write an even better, stronger, more forceful book that's going to be about women. It's not just, you know, and, and for her, of course, that was a huge failure of the French Revolution because they did in the beginning promise that women would be equal citizens and that, and, and the, you know, and the flower and the vegetable sellers would have the same rights as men of class. And she watches it fall apart. She watches the terror and she watches that all fall apart. It's all the promises they always make, isn't it? Because they need women. Women are necessary for any sort of success. And then at the end of it, they're like, oh, yeah, we, we lied. Sauce, what are you going to do about yes. it? Yes, yes. And I think she saw that over, over and over again. And, but, she was, but she wasn't daunted by it. I mean, I, I feel like she keeps... She keeps coming back. And I'm, I feel so sad about the loss of her, the fact that she dies at 38, you know, when she um, had, you know, had finally found, like, some peace mm. in her own personal life. And I think that what she's trying to create with William Godwin, which, you know, they were both opposed to marriage. They thought marriage was oppression and tyranny for both sexes. Yeah. She thought it was, you know, more for, more for women than men. But they do marry because... She gets pregnant again, and, and she suffered a lot having an outward love child. And so they sort of agree to be married. But you can see, you know, in the letters that they're negotiating every single day what that marriage is going to look like as a marriage of equals. You know, like writing time, who's going to take care of three-year-old Fanny? How are they going to divide, you know, the work of managing the house? And how is that different today? I think women feel like, and particularly during the pandemic, we know that women have suffered. Women have taken the brunt of the responsibilities for educating, for managing the house, you know, the groceries, the cooking, all of that. And so, you know, we're still in relationships, negotiating equality, person to person. And that's incredible. I mean, there's a, there's a moment in the book where she says something like, um, you know, I've been fighting for women for women to be equal to men all my life, but for one woman to be equal to one man, that's a different. You know, that's also the fight. Yeah, yeah that we all. It's like have the personal is political. It's the personal is you know is political. And that's why her bringing together of emotions and reason, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's the thing that is used to dismiss women's opinions so often is uh, hormones or too emotional or hysterical. Like men aren't also emotional and hysterical. Hello, Donald Trump. All of that. Hello, Boris. All of these things. But it's very much seen as a woman's realm. And she's like, yeah, okay, it is my realm. But do you know what else? I've got this as well. And that that fight, he used the word dogged, and I think that is the perfect description of it. That dogged fight to just be accepted is incredible. Yes, and she does she does find acceptance. She sort of finds her place at the dinner table of the radical publisher Joseph Johnson. She's often the only woman at that table, and it's amazing thinkers and writers and artists of the day, but they tend to be men. And she holds her own, and I love that eventually... She's just Wollstonecraft. Yeah. Just like they are. That's a kind of equality that she that she wanted and that she believed she had. I mean, she wanted to be there and she knew she could hold her own. I love that. A woman in that, you know, in, in the seventeen, you know, nineties sitting at a dinner table, the only woman among men, among serious, you know, it's a it's it's a that's a heady scene 
and she is absolutely their equal and she knows it. And in fact, you know, when Edmund Burke challenges the, the revolution and argues for the monarchy, they all set their pens to write. You know, everyone wants to be the one to answer Edmund Burke, but she does it first. Yeah. And, um, you know, when they first print Vindication of the Rights of Men, it's not under her name. They, they, all her peers know she's written it. But when they print it, the, the second edition it is under her name. And then it's scandalous that, you know, that a woman would say these things. But then, you know, pretty much from there on out, she publishes under her own name, which, again, is quite, quite extraordinary for the time. There's so much to applaud with Mary Wollstonecraft's life. But I also love that in Love and Fury, you don't shy away from her flaws. She's very clearly bourgeois. She doesn't really think about poor women, even though she's poor, but she's respectable in inverted commas. But also, I like that you have women in there that are capable of surprising her because certainly your version of Mary often underestimates other women such as Lady Kay and Sophia Fusley, for instance, she doesn't offer what she wants to receive necessarily to other women. No, she doesn't. And, well, and of course, some of that, you know, in my own mind, like now she's mixed up who she really was historically with who I imagined her to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you read, I mean, all the great, you know, English biographers have tackled Wollstonecraft, you know, Tomlin, Todd, Gordon, you know, the, the biographies are amazing. But you find, you find in the biographies, like little cracks and clues, the, the things they're not sure of, that they can't be definitive about. And that for, for a fiction writer is like, you know, you just pry open that crack. That's the catnip, think, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's the catnip, yeah. And I don't want to write characters who are dimensional like that, who are restricted like that. I think Sophia Fusilli really is fascinating. And Lady Kay, who has this other, who comes from her own abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like we all carry these stories with us. For instance, I, I have I have three kids and two you know two daughters and you know hearing sort of their generation and their friends talk about the way they think about relationships now or what's abusive, what's inappropriate behavior. When I was growing up, that was just the way it was. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and you know we made decisions and and took responsibility for them. Like, well, yeah, that was a really bad decision that I made, but I made it. You know, I walked into it openly, and and sort of now, you know, to begin like many years later to begin to think of your own life, to you know to rethink, was I, did I volunteer for that? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, how it's much hard. did it's I scary. know? It's scary. Was I, you know, the, the I wasn't the age of consent. Whose responsibility is it? Was it mine? Was it to rethink your own growing up, sort of your own coming of age through the lens of the incredible awareness that our that the next generation has is really interesting. And I think that Wollstonecraft sort of had that. She's so conscious of the self and of the development of the self. She writes about it and, and talks about it. And so I like the idea that she would be also confronted with these other women who have the consciousness, a different kind of consciousness than she does, you know, yeah. of, their, of, the, of their experience. Because they're all aspects. I think when you're writing a character, everyone else is sort of an aspect of the theme or an aspect of the, of, of the character in a kind of Jungian way, you know, that you, you can explore parts of the person by exploring other other characters. 
Definitely. And on that note, obviously, you've mentioned Wollstonecraft has been covered by so many people over centuries. There's a lot of focus on Ilmay and Godwin, the fathers of her children, and also Johnson, who published her and seems like a lovely man. But what I really liked is that much of your focus in Love and Fury is on the women in Mary's life who were Mm. so influential and so loved. And there's a little wondering of whether some of that love moved from a very intense platonic love, sisterly love, to maybe something else. Her relationship with Fanny Blood is is a love affair. Absolutely, it, it it is. And again, that's one of the cracks, sort of, in the biographies because there's no, you know, there's no real definitive proof of that. But it, it's been conjectured by, you know, just about everyone who's looked at Wollstonecraft. I think of it as a love affair, and I hope I'm glad you thought that that it came off as a love affair because it's a it's a kind of you know love that she never got over. She really never got over the loss of Fanny Blood. And it was to her um, an, an ideal love. And they really, they really talked about it and wanted to live a life, to create a life together yeah. as two women. It was a hard decision, actually, about whether to be, you know, how specific to be about that, about a, about a choice. I want Fanny Blood to feel like the love of her life. Yeah. And that, you know, becomes kind of the model for her of what's, of what's possible because I, you know, it, it's easy. And certainly, you know, Godwin, and when he rushes to write a memoir after she dies, the suggestion that she had, oh, maybe a homoerotic dalliance when she was young. But of course she found, you know, fulfillment in heterosexual love later and par- partnership. Why can't women understand it's just going to happen sooner or later that the penis will like some sort of snake <laughs> rising out of a basket, win us rounds. <laughs> Exactly. And and you know, and then you can just forget about that whole Fanny Blood, you know, situation. So I really wanted it to be to still be there and and for that loss and that love and that experiment. They were, you know, exp- it was an experiment in living. Sort of as Virginia Woolf and, you know, a hundred years later resurrects the the reputation of Wollstonecraft really after Godwin kills it, you know, with his with his scandalous memoir. Wolf talks about her you know, you feel her alive and her experiment and living. And I, and I think that she and Fanny Blood talked openly about an experiment where two women could love each other and live together and make a life together without men. And again, 200 years later, apparently this should still be up for discussion. It shouldn't. <laughs> when you're writing about a, a well-loved, well-documented historical character and you're writing a fictionalised version of their life, how much research do you do and, and how do you go about finding that catnip? Well, I did, I did start pretty much with blank, with blank Slate with Mary Wollstonecraft. And so I was very open to whatever... I found whatever suggested itself. And, you know, again, you know, you sort of read the biographies to fill the well. And, and, and they read because they're written by, you know, the greats. They read like page turners. Uh-huh. They, you know, they so often read like novels. So I started as a writer, as a screenwriter. And so I'm very, I'm very plot driven and very, very structural in my thinking. But eventually I put up a long piece of butcher paper across my living room wall and got out the multicolored post-it notes and I just started like my own timeline of what were the events, you know, what were those sort of pearls strung in time that change who she is and spin her off in another direction. Yeah. Each of those things is going to be a story that she tells Mary Shelley, you know, her newborn daughter. 
then sort of when you know, okay, this is an event, this is a formative event. Like the, you know, when she sort of confronts the first one, when, you know, when she confronts her father's abuse of her mother. It's who Wollstonecraft is for the rest of her life. You know, it's an example of how you go in and you mine that incident, you mine that instance in her life. What would that day have been like? The day you decide you are going to lay your body across your mother's threshold. What happened that day? What were you thinking about? It's like by lying down, she decided that she wasn't going to lie down ever again, almost. Exactly. And, and, and I think her father probably did say to her, you know, I could just step over you, which he did. And she's like, well, I'll still be lying here every night when you do. Mm-hmm. It's such an extraordinary moment in a young girl's life yeah. that she confronts this really abusive, tyrannical, drunk man. And, I, you know, and I'm sure he was intimidated by her as well. But, you know, it spins her in another direction. I think it spins her, her being herself her life, her own history in, in another direction. And so it's it's finding those moments. You know, Fanny Blood, like finding the moment with Fanny Blood was another one. Like, when do you realize, you know, oh my God, I, I love I love this woman. And I want, you know, and I want to and I want to make a life with her. Uh-huh. This, is, this is it. This is everything that I believe in and want. Then just letting you know, the imagination run wild. Well, you're clearly in love with Wollstonecraft now, obviously. What, what, is it, what is it for you that sparks that love affair and makes you just adore her? I think what we've, much of what we've talked about is her complexity and her richness. And, you know, I am not a person who enjoys surface. And I hate small talk. I hate all of that. I'm a person who would have few friendships, but they would be very deep mm-hmm. and, you know, just dispense with all pleasantries and go right to the meat of what <laughs> you're thinking about that day or what's, you know, bugging the shit out of you that you have to, that you have to work out. And I think Wollstonecraft is like that. You know, I, I see like, in fact, my best friend whom I've known since I was 14 and we made lots of bad decisions together, and, <laughs> you know, suffered a, suffered a lot because of it. But when she, when the, when the actual physical book came, she was here and she held it up and she said, huh, love and fury. That pretty much says everything about you to, you know, to me. And so I, you know, it hadn't occurred to me that those qualities in in Mary Wollstonecraft were, you know, I was really writing about those qualities that also fire fire me up. And uh-huh. Mary was, is really desperate to feel love. And there's a real softness in her that comes from that vulnerability, and she knows it. And then there's this fierceness, this fury, the rage against injustice of any kind you know, including that her brother Ned was going to inherit everything and the girls in the family would get nothing and they had no future and no, they could be, you know, a a governess or, you know, or a nanny or maybe a teacher, but there was just, there was no path for women who were born into a family like that. There's such a joy as well in reading about this woman's anger, this, this formidable dogged woman from 200 odd years ago her fury that is there in every single word that she writes and yet angry women are still seen as a no-no today when we've got every right to be fucking furious absolutely and i and i think writing it was 
not cathartic for me. You know, it's sort of the opposite of that. It's reinvigorating mm. because because you know, even though she suffered this you know this terrible depression, and which I think she struggled with all her life, and you know, the two suicide attempts, etc., she like, picks herself up each time, and she's like, "Okay, I'm back in the fight," and you know, the the fight the fight never ends, and. So that's the tragedy of her loss. She, you know, she was 38. I think there was still a lot to get from Wollstone Craft. So we have what we have, and it's an incredible gift. And it's every, you know, what she's saying is every bit as important today. It's, you know, not less so, more so, because we're still here. What do we have to do to turn the page on this awful history of men being despotic about women and controlling women what has to happen well can i leave america to you and i'll do my best in the uk (laughs) fair enough that seems that seems fair love and fury is published by allison and busby on june the 17th samantha where can people find out more about what you're up to I have a website, samanthasilvawriter.com, and almost everything would be there, I think. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's been really interesting. Standard Issue for All Women.